Welcome back to the Steed Cycles Podcast. This week we have one of my favourite guests and long-time Steed staff member, Tony Prasindi, also known as Toastrap Tony to some of the staff. Most of you listening will know Tony as one of our highly skilled and knowledgeable mechanics, but what you don't know is his story in the cycling industry dates way back to the mid-pioneers. He also spends a lot of time riding his bicycle all over the place, whether it was racing, now more bikepacking, as you'll hear, he has a lot of incredible stories and a lot of incredible insights into uh, the style of bikes he rides and also his opinions in the way of what will be coming in the cycling industry in the future. I hope you enjoyed the listen. Cheers. How are you, Tony? How's the day? Good. Good day today. Nice and relaxed. So, yeah. starting to get into the fall season. Things are starting to chill out a little bit. It, it was. There was a bit of a rush this afternoon yeah, on the floor. Definitely. How about in the shop? Yeah. It wasn't too bad. Um, so, first thing I want to ask, and I think a lot of customers, a lot of people listening that are long-time customers, will know of Toast Wrap Tony. Yeah. Where did that come from? Who, who started that? That, that was Phil. That was Phil. Yeah. So for some reason, the toe straps were always ending up on my workstand. So he just started calling me toe strap <laughs> Tony, and, uh, and then, you know, maybe maybe it's me using toe straps, like yeah. to, you know, hold things to my bike in that as well. But I think it was just more of a Phil thing that just sort of stuck. Okay. You know. So. Yeah, I I'd heard all these different stories, and I'm like, I had no idea where it started from. It makes so much sense from Phil because he's always talking about like. Uh, tech tip Tuesdays or whatever with yeah, toe strap yeah. Tonys <laughs> all this other I can't even think of the other ones right now but yeah he I guess that's yeah yeah it's a go. Phil thing so if, I mean you notice that we have like nicknames that we put in yeah, the system every, here sort of like to push each other's buttons a little bit <laughs> and I guess that was it but yeah it's stuck and since I've been around for a while it's it really stuck because <laughs> how long have you been at Steed for now? Uh, it's uh, so six years like yeah. going into the seventh year yeah so yeah because i think i've been here just over four and you're here well before yeah. I got so here, i was so. here right after the store expanded so okay. it, the shop hadn't even been built at that time oh, right. they just laid the floor yeah at the shop and the reason that i moved here actually is because of the shop and i heard from uh, a friend of mine that the shop was expanding i live close by and uh, yeah just happened to work out it was a good fit you know yeah so. no sick yeah. um and how long have you been in the industry for? Tell me uh, where that started, because yeah. I know there's a this crazy backstory to where it started. I know it was quite a long time yeah. ago, but where and how did that start? I, you know, I started getting so like as a kid, like a bike to me was like, you know, like a have fun with your friends sort of thing. And then really it sort of fell to the wayside. You know, as a teenager, I, I wasn't really interested in it. Um, then I had a friend when I was around 18 or 19 who was working as a bike courier while he was going to university mm-hmm. and he got one of the first mountain bikes. So we're talking in the 1980s here yeah. and I saw it and I was like, for some reason it just grabbed me and I really started getting into cycling um, at that point in time, you know, so 18, 19, 20 would have been like sort of the, the growth of my love of cycling. Um, I really couldn't afford to pay people to work on my bike. <laughs> so yeah. I started working on my own bike and then started working on other people's bikes. I've always been sort of like a detail sort of guy. Yeah, yeah. And uh, dabbled a little bit in the, you know, like helping out at bike shops and that sort of thing. But uh, full time was like 95-ish. Okay. Um, you know, part time helping out would have been from about 92 through to 95. Yeah. And uh, even getting into it full time was like an accident. Yeah, okay. Um, there was a woman down the street who was a TV producer for the CBC. Yeah. And she was doing an episode of a TV show called Busy Bodies, which was like a, a lifestyle show in Montreal. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't working at the time. I quit my job and I sort of was lost and didn't know what I was going to do. <laughs> and she said, hey, would you like to be in this segment on bike theft? And yeah. I went to do it and the shop saw me, thought I was like some sort of expert and <laughs> hired me basically on the spot to work at the shop. Oh, and wow. I said what the hell you know like i love cycling so i'm gonna work yeah, in why the, not yeah so 
Uh, I think I've stuck with it just because I do love cycling so much and, you know, the lure of wearing a t-shirt and shorts to work every day <laughs> it's, uh, it's versus a, a suit and tie was definitely like... Uh, it's definitely a very a relaxed industry yeah. to work in. Even yeah. even these days, like, I, I can only imagine back, like, mid-90s how, how relaxed that was and... Yeah, and it was like, also like, it, you know, that was at the peak of, like, the whole mountain bike thing happening, yeah. right? So that was like... You know, we've had this recent pandemic uh, bike boom. That was the bike boom of the 90s. That was the previous bike yeah. boom. And I think before that would have been the 1970s with drop bar bikes after movies like Breaking Away and that sort of thing came out. Yeah. And some sure. of the American riders started doing well in the international events like the Tour de France and that sort of thing. Yeah, so, yeah. So, yeah, it's just, it's, it's definitely been interesting. But, yeah, it's been a... <laughs> been a long time but it's mostly by accident how how was that boom back then like with like you had like sean palmer like going insane acting like a rock star like that was all late 90s was it not uh yeah so that that would have been like late 90s um so there was the cross-country boom came before that that was the bar ends and purple anodized components and all that sort of um, stuff uh what's his name miles uh Oh, I got a mental blank on here. Miles Rockwell. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, you know, the downhill guys back then had bar ends on their bikes or they, you know, uh, John Tomac used to yeah. have to race with drop bars because he was racing for Motorola at the same time. Okay. Um, and his coach wouldn't let him race on a flat bar. So oh, really? he so basically he would... said, fuck it, I'm going to race on drop bars and still, <laughs> you know, yeah, kick everyone's ass, right? So, yeah. um, you know, yeah, it was a, definitely an interesting time. And for me, like, you know, like working in a bike shop, I mean, bike shops were a little bit different then. So more, uh, more of a bro type atmosphere. There weren't that many women working in the bike industry. Yeah. Um, And it was also the transition from the traditional family type shop into a more focused enthusiast or, you know, a passionate, like a mountain biking shop or a a road shop or, you know. So we're talking about that. Were there yeah. many bikes in department stores back then, or it was mainly yeah? Like so that bikes? would be your Is that you like, know like the average person would most likely go to a department store. I think yeah. the bikes were probably of better quality at a department store back then. Yeah. Um, whereas now they tend to be very high profit and yeah. low quality. Then it was you know sort of a sort of a wash uh, somewhere yeah. in, in the middle there. But the bike shops definitely had better bikes but you have to remember you had a choice of you know six seven or eight speeds it's not like nowadays electronic shifting 12 speed there's there's lots of different variation of bike now going on then it was a little bit simpler as far as a bike shop for parts um until the mountain bike boom and then all of a sudden everyone wanted all the little aftermarket parts because it had really opened up the market for a lot of the smaller guys to come in with stuff that the bigger guys weren't offering so So, you know, talking about that, was there many, like in the road world, I guess, back then, did you see a lot of custom stuff coming through or was it mainly road was pretty traditional. So that's been, you know, like, I mean, up until recently, I mean, road has sort of stuck with tradition. So that resistance to disc brakes and that sort of thing that comes more from tradition. It's definitely changed in the last couple of years, as we see. So people are putting bigger tires on bikes, um, you know, willing to experiment a little bit more with the setup on a bike. Yeah. Um, and that sort of thing, you know, like that, that definitely wasn't there. It was more of a traditional thing. So it was the, the white socks and the stiff shoes and the chamois, yeah. like everything was very regimented. Yeah. There wasn't this sort of freedom to be the way that, that you can do anything you want now, you know, so. Yeah, I remember hearing some stories from Gary Fisher once. And if anyone doesn't know who Gary Fisher is, definitely look up that guy's name because he's a legend in the sport. But um, hearing some stories from him where he was trying to convince one of the bike brands he was sponsored by to give him 700C wheels that were wide enough to then put tires on them and things like that to then make it a 29er and just experiment with all that. And it's very interesting to hear that versus like what you're saying in the road back then. Yeah, so like, the you know, even the development like with the early mountain bikes was going in the wrong direction almost because they were taking cues from the road bike world. Yeah. Um, Whereas nowadays, I think 
bikes are taking more of their cues from every genre of biking yeah. and just finding the best possible way of, uh, you know, uh, a rider having the best possible experience for whatever they're doing and not following that tradition. But, you know, mountain bikes going through that very lightweight phase where cross country was a thing, semi-slick tires, narrow rims. That was the old road guys who had basically invented mountain biking. Yeah. Now sort of going back to their road routes with the mountain bike. So, you know, like the, the reason that rims were narrow, Keith Bontrager was taking 700C rims yeah. and re-rolling them into 26 inch. Is that what we wanted? Because really the first bikes had big wide rims and balloon tires and now we're going into that road, right. uh, yeah, you know, like, yeah. like Sean. And it actually made the bikes um, less less of a mountain bike and more of a road bike. The yeah. courses got easier to race. They were just like dirt, you know, yeah, criterium yeah. tracks, basically. Yeah, with a bit of a with, hill in it. Yeah, whereas now it's actual, you're riding on an actual trail. So I think mountain biking now, like this is probably the best possible time for mountain biking. Uh, probably the best possible time for road, probably the best time actually for cycling, yeah. in, at least in my lifetime, um, because you can find great product from pretty much any com company yeah. um, that'll suit what you need um at you know multiple price points and i think that i think that's good for the industry you know giving people choice yeah and it's it's it, everyone like when we talk to people on the floor and things like that it's like there's so many more dots that we have to link when people are talking about coming in and riding a bike it's like they come in and ask for a gravel bike because that's what their friends told them that they need and and they need something completely different or or vice versa and it's like there's so many specifics within cycling these days that as you're saying versus having a couple of styles of bike to now having like i can think of i don't know 16 17 something like that different genres of cycling let alone like, you know what i mean yeah like, and the, the the good thing now is that people are also willing to step out of their shell and um you know, they'll ride multiple disciplines of bike. Um, yeah. Bike commuting is also a lot more popular, especially here uh, in the lower mainland because the climate allows for it. Yeah. And the infrastructure is there and growing, as we saw with the pandemic where there was such a big growth in cyclists. I noticed that a lot of the, the bike lanes here locally and in the greater Vancouver area uh, yeah. expanded in size. Um yeah, it's, it's you know, so. crazy in that sense. Like, I guess you've probably never seen a growth like that in, was it almost 30 years you've been in the industry? 30, yeah. Yeah, almost yeah. 30 years And, ago. you know, like originally I'm from Montreal. So there, you know, the, the climate is definitely has a big effect on cycling because there's, you know, there's six months of the year where it's very rainy or cold or icy. Mm. So the average person really isn't going to have that push to, hey, maybe I'm going to leave the car at home and ride my bike to work. Um, you know, whereas here we have a much more temperate climate. It's it's a lot nicer. Uh, so que yeah. question for you, living yeah. in Montreal, and, and I know we've spoken about this in the past. You rode, I remember you telling me about riding to work in the, it, in the it winter. Was like in the middle of yeah. winter what temperatures was that and what were you wearing you, you, back then? you get to in the in the minus 20s for sure so i've ridden like minus 25. um uh, you have to dress to be cold at the beginning of the ride yeah. because once you heat up if you're dressed to be warm at the beginning of the ride you're you're overheating and then you're just covered in sweat if you have a mechanical or it gets windy that just freezes on you. It just takes you out. So you have to you had to really dress to be cold at the beginning of a ride. Bring some extra gear just in case something happened. Um, you had to change the oils and everything so that they were lighter viscosity. I was only I was using a bike with a rear brake only because touching a front brake on icy oh, yeah. uh, ground just meant you were going down. Uh, and the bikes were pretty much disposable for the winter. So I would just build up a beater for the winter, mm -hmm. uh, keep it going for six months, and then basically just junk the thing yeah. uh, at the end of the season, start all over again the next season. So, yeah. But it was an interesting experience. So I, I like being out in the weather. Yeah. Um, so even here, I know that you know the rain and that usually is a deterrent to people, or, or on our hot days that we have here in July and August. I love riding on those days because I have... 
uh, you mean, you know, like all of British Columbia to myself at that point in time. Yeah. I rarely run into anyone else. And it's good to, you know, sometimes get into your own head um, and just get out there and enjoy nature and, uh, you know, as people used to in the past and, and didn't have a choice. <laughs> I do it by choice. I just like it, you know, so. Yeah, there's. I feel uh, like I've achieved something by being out there on a day that oh, most 100%. people find, uh, you know, maybe it isn't the best day to be outside. I, I like being outside on those days. So. Yeah, and I, and I think there's, there's definitely something to be said of having the attitude of you get to do something versus you have to do something. Yeah. Like, if you you get up, you want to go out and ride in the in those conditions, in those extreme conditions, because you get home and you feel good, you feel accomplished. Like, um, yeah, I I've always been a big fan of that attitude for sure myself. Yeah, and you know, I mean, there's there's lots of things in life that you don't have the choice of dealing with. So going out and and doing things and maybe not the best conditions are a way of conditioning yourself to deal with adversity in a positive way, right? I, so Yeah, I would I would have to agree. Like um, I actually had a, a pretty in-depth conversation with uh, Tammy, who we had on here not that long ago. And so she's a photographer. She's looking at writing a couple of different books and she was asking about like, how has cycling changed my life? I'm like, in every different way you could think of I can relate it to something that's happened with me on the bike and it's like what you're talking about like going through adversity whether it's riding on a 40 degree day whether it's riding on a minus 20 degree day whether it's like climbing the biggest hill exactly uh, like whatever you you don't feel at 100 percent, but you're you're 50 yeah. kilometers away from home so you you know I mean you, you gotta go at home yeah know, so. like le- learning to lose learning to yeah. win yeah. like there's uh, and there's a lot of the time if you make a mistake there's no one else to blame but yourself so yeah uh, so. talking about racing you've done a few iconic races down in the states uh yeah so when uh i, I lived in utah for about four and a half years yeah um and uh when i was there you know when when i was in my 20s i had read about all these races in colorado and utah and arizona and they were, you know, they have, they leave a certain impression in your mind and you have an impression of what the race is like when well, I had a chance to actually ride those races. Mm. Um, so I took full advantage of it. And I, I did races like the Iron Horse Classic in uh, Durango, uh, Leadville a couple of times, um, 24 Hours of Moab, you know, like just any yeah. race that I could think of that I had was sort of on like a youth bucket list. Yeah. I said, hey, I have the means to do it now, and I'm going to take full advantage of it. And luckily, my circle of friends was also into that, uh, you know, the, the whole racing scene. Um, so, you know, it's a chance to sort of hang out with my friends, yeah. uh, have a good time, have a goal for your training, which was great, you know. So really push yourself hard because you knew that there was something at the end where you wanted to achieve a certain goal. And... I'm not ever going to come up in the top 10 of any of those races. I'm a fit guy for sure, but I'm not, you know, I'm not at that superhuman level of fit. Um, But I have to say it really pushed me to push my limits for sure. You know, something like Leadville, you're racing at 12,000 feet elevation. You're doing 12,000 feet of climbing. Um, It's hot. It's cold. Uh, yeah, you, you, you have to resupply have along the <laughs> way and uh, you know it can really crush you and I was glad to see that I could push myself through something like that and uh, so and then did I hear you did that on a fat bike as well yeah one year? so the uh, the first year I did it on uh, on a cross-country full suspension bike yeah and then I started getting into fat biking just be I don't know it was sort of started to become popular and for some reason it grabbed me and I bought one for the winter and then I decided I was going to race cross country in the summer on my fat bike okay and uh just to be that guy you know (laughs) and uh so I uh I did Leadville in 2012 on a fat bike and I think I finished in about 10 and a half hours if I remember correctly which is under the 12. yeah um it was hard for sure um, because with with that sort of bike, I was riding 10 psi in the tires. Yeah. Um, because otherwise, it's like riding on basketballs, and 
to be honest, um, the person who inspired me to do it was a gentleman I'd seen the year before who was racing on his fat bike, who was in his 60s. And I was like, well, if he can do it, then I can certainly do oh, it. Oh, yeah. Um, he finished a minute before me. And I, I wanted to be the first guy ever to finish. There was <laughs> me, him, and I think James from Black Sheep. There's a frame builder okay. out of Colorado. Yeah. And uh, James, I think, DNF'd. And uh, yeah, and then... Uh, that William finished a minute before me and then I finished by, you know, big hugs yeah. and high fives Ever, afterwards because we had achieved it. And, you know, so I go into the record books as the unknown guy who was the second person ever to <laughs> finish Leadville on a fat bike, you know, so. It's not, it was, not a bad uh, thing to have against your name. Yeah. Uh, how, how much slower were you on the fat bike versus, do you remember versus uh, About this? an hour. Okay. So yeah. there was a bit of a fair difference there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so I don't know whether that was a fitness thing or it was just the bike, the bike. but yeah. and and also the conditions change on a course For like sure. that because it's a, you know it's a hundred mile race, right? So yeah. one hundred and sixty kilometers. How did the does the course change that much year to year? The, like the it would course have to is pretty. Something. It's pretty similar from year to year, but they have to change it depending on environmental conditions. So yeah. you know we're we're talking like uh, Lead, Leadville is the I believe it's the highest city in North America. Uh, incorporated city in North America so it's up there so you know the race is in August but there are still passes that have snow yeah um, so sometimes I have to redirect things because of the uh, you know the for environmental sure. concerns for the racers yeah um, but they do a really good job of it it's uh, you know yeah. that's definitely on a lot of people's bucket list to do a race like that and you know I, I've moved away from <laughs> racing because it's pretty expensive to race bikes yeah, uh, even as an amateur, it's expensive. It's, pro it's probably more expensive as an yeah. amateur than it is as a uh, as a professional. Yeah, I, it's, I mean, it's not only you know you have the bike, you have the food, you have the accommodation, you have the travel, you have everything else. So, and you know, I had a you know like my wife and a young son at the time, and of course, if I was going somewhere, they, they didn't want to feel <laughs> left out. So you know, one person now becomes three people, and. It yeah. was, you know, quite expensive, but I had the means at that time and, and the freedom to be able to do that. So it was, uh, it was a good fit at that time. Um, whereas now I think I just ride more for me yeah. and I may do the same type of ride, but I'm just going to do it for me and not do it so that my name is on a, you know, <laughs> on, a, on a, a trophy. A, at the yeah, end of the day. on a trophy. Or, so, you know. Yeah, I feel like I'm going through that same thing. Like, I feel like I'm going through the... Like I'm now 33, yeah, and it's sort of like getting to the point where I'm like, I don't need to turn up to a race for me to prove to myself who I am. Like I've been racing for since I was three years old and it's like at that point I'm like, all right, I've done enough racing. I can now go ride my bike for fun and have the same enjoyment. I feel like listening to your stories about some of the stuff you do over the weekends and things like that and it's like, you're doing 400 plus Ks over, over two days. And it's like, you're just going into these random areas of bikepacking and things. And that's I, I just try like, so my main thing when I'm riding is I'm trying to push myself as hard as I can in the moment. Yeah. So that means that some days I'm pushing harder than others, but I'm always pushing as hard as I can. And, you know, part of it is just that I get off on it. Yeah. So, you know, I, I like the pain of climbing uh, a horrible, heinous <laughs> hill that destroys my body yeah. because it's the feeling of success going over the crest yeah. that gives me that rush, you know, so. Yeah, I, I, I think many people out there listening yeah. would probably be able to agree on that as well. Like, um, And then I sort of feel like, coming to bc i've found more people that are like that versus more people needing to race to get that same yeah sort it's of definitely this is like a vortex of people <laughs> are really into the outdoors here for sure yeah. um so there's a lot of sports where people are going to push themselves here and we're, we're talking like average everyday people yeah um who you know their job is sort of a means for them to enjoy they're not job right yeah yeah <laughs> so well, that's, that's for me like uh, the both of them sort of co-mingle together um which works out fine because i get to ride the bikes of millionaires even though i'm not a millionaire yeah um but 
you know, for others, that's that's not an option. They're work, but they're they're working so that they can enjoy their life outside of work. You know, so yeah, I, I like the fact that my life and my my enjoyment outside of work and my work sort of commingle together. So even though I have bad days at work, I still never hate work. <laughs> yeah, um, a, a bad day because I like what bad. I'm doing. You yeah. know, so no, I I completely agree. Yeah. Um, so what is in the quiver of Tony's bikes? Um, so, you know, I, I've cut down the number of bikes that I have because I don't have as much space here uh, and a lot of people can probably relate, <laughs> but I do have quite a few bikes. So I have, uh, you know, I have a, the, the, a bike packing geared bike. Uh, I have a single speed bike packing bike slash fun bike, single speed commuting slash bike packing bike, uh, fat bike. Uh, I have my mountain bike um all of the bikes are steel yeah um so yes i've done the carbon and everything else but i sort of gravitated back to my roots um i love steel bikes i like buying from canadian manufacturers as well so a uh, few chromags in there i'm on chromag number four right now okay and uh but every bike is steel right now um except for one fat bike so i kept my race bike that i did leadville on yeah, um, and that one I'll probably keep for a while, and that's a, that's an aluminum uh, an aluminum bike. But yeah, no no full suspension as well. So everything's a rigid or hardtail. So you, front suspension. You did only. have a dual suspension on that long ago, didn't you? Yeah. So I had the last bike I had was the Bronson. Yeah. Uh, which was great. I wanted to try twenty seven five wheels, and it was a, definitely a nimble little bike. But I think I have more fun on the twenty nine inch hardtail. Yeah. Have you so, have you done much on the mullet wheel set or no? I haven't tried mullet. Okay. No. So I could see the advantages for sure. Yeah. Um, I you know I think from a marketing perspective as far as mullet goes, it's it's sort of the final nail in the coffin of any other size but twenty nine. Yeah. Um, so it's been a slow progression to getting to that twenty nine. When I, when I moved here in twenty thirteen, yeah, and I had a twenty nine inch bike everyone looked at me like I was a nut job. Um, <laughs> yeah. And there was a lot of that whole 26 ain't dead and I'm never going to give it up. And then all of a sudden those guys, you know, three years later, it's like they invented the 29 inch wheel. Um, so things change for sure. And I don't think people realize how fast things change. But, yeah. uh, you know, the mullet is there and I, I think it's good for for some people. I, like I said, I haven't tried it myself, so I don't really have an opinion um, that you know that, that may be like a, a qualitative opinion on it, but uh, but definitely uh, yes, I can see the advantage for some people to have that faster uh, faster accelerating rear wheel. Yeah. So for me, I prefer twenty nine twenty nine. But uh, yeah, especially for the style of riding you're doing with a lot of those like off road longer K's, bike packing yeah. K's. Yeah, and e even but. on the mountain, I'm not a you know like I I used to be a downhill sort of guy back in the in the 90s and early 2000s. Yeah, that's not the type of riding that I do anymore. So I'm not a bike park guy. I'm not a big air guy. I'm not a jump guy. Yeah. I'm a keep the wheels on the ground sort of guy. Uh, I, I'm 55, you know, so. Uh, that's that's just the way it is and uh you know i have kids and a wife and everything else so for me it's just uh keep the wheels on the ground roll through the stuff as easily as possible yeah. i want my suspension if i have it whether it's on the front <laughs> or the back to work well yeah um and i want a bike that has a certain amount of compliance to it so my preference for steel now so a little bit cheaper than carbon yeah um for sure and still has a nice ride quality to it so talking so, suspension, I know we, yeah. we briefly spoke about this before uh, the podcast. You mentioned you've got a few different upside down forks, but you've never touched linkage. You've then had obviously a few of the other forks and things like that. How has one, the bikes evolved, but two, mainly suspension evolved over all the different years? Definitely like, come a long way. So... <laughs> You know, I remember back in the 90s when I got my first fork was a Future Shock FSX. So basically the carbon fiber mag 21 fork yeah. from Specialized that I had on a Fat Chance back then. Okay. That's, uh, you know, 28 millimeter legs on it. Uh, you know, it, it bolted together in like five pieces. Um, they were spindly. 
Yeah. Uh, they had no travel. You know, 60 millimeters was the travel. Yeah. My, my downhill bike in 1994, 95 was 80 mil travel bike. Yeah, wow. And I thought that was like, you know, the cat's meow <laughs> back then. Yeah, bad. And nowadays a cross-country bike would have, you know, gobs more travel than that. So yeah. definitely come a long way. And the, the technology back then, unfortunately, what happened was a lot of smaller builders got into it. They looked to the motorcycle world, but they looked at the you know beginning of the motorcycle world so the harley davidsons that had linkage springer type forks yeah. on them so which is why you had all the gervin type forks that sort of thing back then um whereas you know the motocross forks of the day were telescopic they really should have been looking at that and that was rock shocks when they came out with the rs1 yeah. that was the first true fork it actually had damping it had a proper spring in it um, you know, the legs that were properly made, that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, every, so, everything worked. Yeah, everything worked. But, I, you know, I think I have a mountain bike action app where they had the suspension force of the day. And there, there's probably 50, 60 different forks on there back in the day. Whereas mm. nowadays, you have, what, you know, five manufacturers, really. That, pretty, pretty much. Yeah, that you would see anything come from. So it's definitely evolved a lot. Um, I think the free ride movement here... Um, really helped evolve bikes quite a bit yeah. so in the you know late 90s and uh, up until the mid 2000s the what i call the huck to flat era um frames got stronger uh suspension designs all the crappy ones got filtered out and we're now down to a bunch of basic designs that everyone uses the patents are gone yeah so now anyone can use them which is great because you have multiple companies working on the same design versus yeah. one company yeah um so, you know, the bikes that people buy nowadays, you know, even when I, you know, I, I work with a lot of guys who are, you know, maybe 30 years my junior sometimes. Yeah. Um, they grew up in a great time because they don't know what a crappy bike is. <laughs> it's definitely very different. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, you definitely see that on the floor when like kids are getting like seven, eight thousand dollar bikes that ride Whistler every day is definitely yeah. a very different very yeah. different very different you know i started on like a rigid bike yeah you know and then you know definitely the trails have changed a lot since then for, for sure. sure yeah um and the technology on every part of the bike has changed i mean tires are better rims are better hubs are better everything is better yeah right? so it's not only one part that got better it's everything got better so yeah, like I remember there's been so many different variations and even right back to when they tried to make brake levers and shifters, like Shimano had the brake lever and shifter all as one yeah. with the rapid fire. And I, I could only think like trying to shift and brake at the same time or trying to brake and then it would shift or all sorts of things would be happening. Like, Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot was, of engineering dollars went into that. Uh, that project and unfortunately it lasted a year on the market before yeah. the market said no so yeah yeah um, and like yeah yeah that, that was a crazy one and yeah I don't know there's there's lots of different things I'm sure that you've seen over the years yeah so I've I've tried to try as many of the weird products as possible um, because it helps me have an opinion that has value when I'm talking to people. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I had Shimano Airlines on my downhill bike. Yeah, with the big canister yeah, on the, the side of it. Yeah, the big canister on it. And I, I actually traded, I kept it up until recently in, in the original box and uh, traded it for a chromag frame. Yeah. Uh, you know, so, yeah. Um, so it had some value to me. Um, and it was great back in the day. It was like, it was really cool. But that's sort of the precursor to the electronic shifting that we have now. Yeah. Trying air, uh, electronic works better. I think wireless is definitely going to be the big thing in the future for, for all companies. So yeah. not only SRAM, but I think Shimano is going to have to move in that direction uh, if they hope to capture any of the mountain bike market anyway. I think I think for mountain biking, they definitely need to go yeah. completely wireless. Yeah. Like, I, I obviously, they've gone semi-wireless, I guess you could call it. Yeah, on the road bikes, they went semi-wireless because you're able to, but on a mountain bike, you don't have the option of putting anything inside your seat post. No. And with all the myriad suspension designs out there, there's just, you know, no place to hide a wired-in battery yeah. that's going to be clean. So... It, it would be a you know a pretty hard sell for a product manager to, to design a bike around a wired system yeah. when it's very easy for them to design a bike that can take a mechanical system and a wireless system. 
right? So um, most definitely, and and just the fact that the average consumer is just used to everything being wireless anyway. I mean, when I grew up in the nineteen seventies, the remote control to our TV was wired to the TV. Yeah. Um, nowadays, if you were to offer that to someone, you'd be laughed right out of the, the <laughs> shop, right? So yeah, yeah, and yeah, no, it's uh, it's definitely the way of the future for yeah. sure. Yeah. So, so question for yeah. you, talking about future wired wireless electronic thoughts on if when maybe wireless or wired electronic braking will come i don't think it's going to happen you don't no and the reason for that is that there are not that many vehicles that have wireless brakes on them mm -hmm. in the market in the it way of automotive you're talking yeah. about yeah so it would have to be something that first was developed in the automotive world, sure. I think. Yeah. Um, anyway, that's my take on it. Um, yes, sure. In some aircraft, you have you know fly-by-wire for pretty much everything, but they have triple redundant systems. So yeah, it's not like your mountain bike's going to have three separate brake levers on it just in case one of them doesn't <laughs> work. Um, so that would be a hard ask. So I think there's going to be a mechanical connection there. It, you know, I have to tell you, with with wireless shifting. What I like is it cleans up the cockpit quite nicely because mm. you just have two hoses coming off of the bike. Yeah. And there are ways to integrate it into, you know, the handlebar and everything else. We've seen some companies try that. The problem with that is that it limits the choice for the consumer. So the thing for me is that while I admire technological advance, I also like things to be easy to service. Um, and also, it's nice if a part isn't proprietary to sure. one company, because as we all know, what happens is it's produced for a couple of years and then it goes out of favor, out of production, that you can't get parts for it. Yeah. And the object that it's bolted to now becomes useless because you need this one proprietary part to be able to use it. So yeah. that's anything. I, the way a shock is mounted to a frame, the way a bottom bracket goes into a frame, uh, you know, the, the spacing on a wheel. So people complain often when a new standard comes out, as long as it's something that becomes universal, it's fine. If it's one or two companies that have that standard, unfortunately it's not a standard at that no. point in time, right? So. Yeah, like you obviously see that with the, the giant stems and then the, the Super Boost, I guess is starting to come along, but there's not a huge amount of people taking yeah. up the Super Boost and things like that. But yeah, interesting take on the the braking because I was talking with uh, Dougie Fresh about that and uh, and he, he was sort of umming and ahhing about how that would all come about but I, I think I think the the big thing I'm not saying that it's not possible because anything is possible 100%. I think the problem lies in that the lawyers that work for companies wouldn't yeah, allow the, something <laughs> like that to the, be the released to the public because they're worried about the potential lawsuits from someone who says, hey, someone hacked the transmission or, and I couldn't stop and I hit a tree and yeah. therefore I'm a paraplegic and blah, 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 you know, that sort of thing. So yeah, and that's a, I think that, I think that's the, the big thing is more the dealing with the with the legal aspects of having something like that. Yeah, and, that, that's and, a fair point yeah. to think about as well, that it's not just an engineering point, it's everything that goes about it. Yeah, so like right now we're sort of facing that a little bit like with driverless cars like on the road. Yeah. Um, you know, and you have people reading books while they... Well, I mean, technically you got to be paying attention to what's going on because yeah. if once you absolve yourself of responsibility, if something happens... Well, that's when you're responsible. It's when yeah. the thing happens, right? <laughs> yeah, when, when it fails. Yeah, it's not when everything works perfectly that you, that you worry about. It's when the thing fails. Yes, the system fails and you weren't paying attention. Then ultimately you're responsible, even though someone has said, hey, this is safe. You're still, you're using that product. Yeah. So you're in control of that product. And I think a lot of people like to absolve themselves of the control. Um, but I think that's... Uh, it's a little bit of a cop out, you know, to absolve I, yeah, yourself. I would, from the I would agree. I would agree. Um, so, with all the different bikes you've had, and you're saying you're trying a lot of different parts and things like that, what would you say would be some of the craziest or the strangest things you've tried? Because I know you've got some pretty funky things on your bikes now, but where would you? <laughs> 
pulling from the memory bank says like you were talking about air, uh, hydraulic air steering dampers uh, on, was that like on downhill bikes that you yeah. were running those yeah i always and wondered how or if that would be a thing because coming from the moto world we had steering dampers yep. growing up racing because we weren't obviously strong enough to hold on to motorcycles so always wondered if that would ever transfer worked well just never caught on yeah. in the mountain bike world um so i was using a hopi steering damper okay and it would it would damp like if you hit something it would damp yeah but if you actually were putting input into the bar it wouldn't damp okay yeah um so in that respect it worked but you know it took special fitting to the frame and, mm -hmm. and a special way of fixing it inside the steer tube and that sort of so it wasn't something that was for everyone. For sure. Um, and, you know, to be fair, like the downhill market, while, you know, when I was in it, I thought it was the only thing that was, you know, out there. But the reality is for 99.9% .9 of cyclists, it means nothing. Yeah. Know? Yeah. So, <laughs> um, I, I see more of an application maybe for like nowadays for like uh, cargo bikes or that sort of oh, thing where you're carrying a heavy load on a bicycle yeah. and you're trying to keep the wheel from flopping around under the load. So you yeah. do see, you know, rudimentary dampers, like a little spring that mounts from the fork to the, to the down tube yeah. to keep the fork from flopping around. That's yeah. a cheap way of damping yeah, the, the fork. So I think, you know, that's the way that the market has gone. It's, they've gone for a simpler solution that's easier to retrofit. Yeah. I mean, easier to take off versus a very complicated system. Still, you know, like even in the motocross world, it's not something that's universal. It's something it's, that's... Uh, yeah, it's definitely brand to brand. Yeah, brand changes. to brand and rider to rider. So, you know, they're, they're still available out there, but I don't see a lot of people running that sort of thing anymore. No, so. and it's, as you say, it's, it's definitely very application specific yeah whether depending on what you're riding where you're racing yeah things like so, that yeah so that, that, that I mean the airline shifting was definitely weird and that's you know the only reason I got that was just it was so ridiculously expensive they couldn't sell it and uh, a friend of mine at Shimano said look I got this set here do you want to try it and I said hey sure you know, I'm not going to I'm not going to say no. So how did so. that work? Did you, was that run off CO2 or was that like, could you that was, freeze? It was, it was air. So it had a little air canister that you pressurized to 200 PSI. Yeah. And then the shifts were actually working off of like a 20 PSI shift. So every time you shifted, yeah. um, it was using, you know, a little burst of air. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it lasted, I think it was somewhere around four or 500 shifts. Okay. Uh, so on a downhill bike, you know, I mean, yeah, you know, multiple days of riding for sure. Um, I had modified mine, so I used a paintball canister. Okay. And I put 2,000 psi in there <laughs> and ran a step-down regulator off of it. Yeah. Um, the only thing is, I was worried about having this grenade between my legs on the <laughs> underside of my frame. So yeah, if you, if you I had it wrapped <laughs> with a BMX tire. Yeah. Um. Uh. So that if it ever shrapneled, it wouldn't take my ankles out. Yeah. Bad. Um. And that was just like just a fun little mod I did because I had a paintball canister in a way of stepping down the pressure on it. <laughs> 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 I oh, I could only imagine if that yeah. thing went so off. Th this this was the era. So like. I worked on a lot of people's downhill bikes back then and you would buy components that were supposedly would fit to any bike, yeah. but the bike standards were not standardized as much as they are nowadays. Yeah. So there was a lot of modification going on. So I would spend hours and hours having to modify these standardized in air quotes parts to yeah. fit on someone's <laughs> bike and they may fit on, you know, this guy's intense, but they don't fit on that guy's iron horse or yeah. whatever else. Right. So it was... Uh, it was it was a fun time for sure. Whereas nowadays, I think, you know, things are definitely standardized. Yeah. To, to, <laughs> the the to measurement the measurements are a little bit more accurate. Yeah, you they're, say. they're a little bit more accurate, and I think you know a lot of the product managers have realized that if you want to sell bikes, you have to sell bikes that are not difficult for people to deal with, right? So yeah, and I I also see that uh, I was having a conversation with a guy today actually about tire inserts and you think back like i remember uh, like racing downhill and you'd buy a downhill bike and then you put downhill tubes in downhill tires yeah. on chain guide on uh wide handlebars on and you do all of that before you even left the showroom floor 
yet now you look at a downhill bike and it's got all of that stuff standard. It's already ready it's, to go. It's got the seven speed cluster, it's yeah. got the short cage derailleur, you know, the the stubby little seat post, everything is like ready to like ready to rock and roll versus you having to sort of build it up from yeah. whatever parts you have. And you know, going to that tire inserts that brings me to the other weirdest thing that I've tried would be the THE uh, eliminator rims, which was it was an attempt at Cushcore before Cushcore, okay. uh, way before Cushcore, because we're talking 1999-ish, I think. Oh, wow. Um, and it was a rim that had a built-in center bulge with a rubber strip that snapped into it, and okay. it kept your inner tube from pinch flatting. So the tube was almost like an inverted U in, wrapped around this like center channel. Okay. So it basically would... Oh, okay. okay. I get you. So, yeah. so you were able to run super light tubes and super yeah. light tires. The problem is there was so little space to put the tire on because you didn't have that center channel to drop the bead yeah. in. Yeah. There was so little space to drop the tire in. I was using motorcycle tire levers to get the tire on. <laughs> to get the tire on. And yeah. to get the tire off, I would cut the tire off the rim. Yeah, wow. Yeah, so that didn't last very long. It worked really well. So I, I demonstrated it to a, a few of my friends. I put 10 PSI in my tires. Yeah. I had a crappy Canadian tire inner tube in there and like a cheap cross country tire. And I hit every boulder down the trail and yeah. my tire still had air in it at the yeah, bottom. Wow. So they're like, amazing. Um, the problem with it was you were bottoming out on this hard metal surface all the time. I was blowing out bearings on my hubs oh, like yeah. every week. <laughs> Yeah. So that was the thing that killed that. I think the difficulty of getting tires on and off definitely yeah, was one thing. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, and that's, uh, that's, so that was THE Enterprises back then. So I think everyone remembers those goofy plastic the motocross Mark type fenders yeah. that we all had. Um, that's the guy who now runs Box Components. He oh, came up with interesting. that. Interesting. I didn't yeah. realize he was the same guy. Yeah, so it's Toby Henderson. So, oh. you know, BMX race. So same thing yeah. as you, you know, I've been racing since he was three years old. BMX, then mountain bikes, then yeah, you know. So been in the bike biz forever. That's one of those things you get in the bike biz you can never get out, right? Yeah. So, yeah, you get sucked into the yeah, black you get, hole. Especially if you've been racing and you're looking for a career afterwards, uh, you tend to fall back into <laughs> the things that you know, right? So yeah, yeah. But yeah, that's definitely one of the weirdest products. So, you know, something where I had high hopes for it, but it wasn't the right product. So now you know, yeah. I look at it like a, something like a Kush Core. Yeah. You can take it in, you can take it out, you cannot use it, you can use it, whatever. You have light versions, heavy versions, wide versions, uh, many different companies making them. You know, that, that to me makes more sense for, for people, yeah. for sure. So. And you're not blowing out your wheel bearings. Yeah. So the thing is, a lot of times people have a great idea and the technology isn't there, or it's just not the right time for the product. For sure. Yeah. Like, talking about that... Uh, the I remember when Shimano, I think it was like in the late 60s, had a ratchet on their front, maybe it was even sooner than that, but a ratchet on their front chain rings and then a fixed cog on the rear. Yeah. So then they would essentially create a gearbox bike with a, with a regular driveline or what you could class as a regular driveline. And it's not been until recently that that's started to come back and you've seen that starting to happen yeah, and you right. see, like, you know, like with a lot of things like uh, Williams Racing products yeah. and that sort of thing, a lot of guys are looking to remove pedal kickback from their riding. For sure. Um, and that's one way of achieving it, for sure, is having uh, a crank that can ratchet free of the chain ring. Yeah. Um, so that no matter what's going on with your suspension, it's not actually affecting uh, your pedal placement uh, on the bike, you know. So when milliseconds count, you know, something like that may be the technology that pushes you to the win versus uh, a second or a third place finish, right? So, yeah, especially at that, that level, like yeah. the World Cup level that you're talking about, for sure. Um, so moving on a little bit from essentially all the bike technology, I know you collect a lot of patches. Yes, <laughs> and, and, and stickers. And stickers. Yeah. What is some of your craziest patches? I've seen lots of them online. Uh, I mean... You know, there. I, I go through phases of getting patches. <laughs> so, like, my interest will be peaked, and I'll get a lot of patches. Uh, I try to get them from all around the world. They yeah. they tend to be cycling oriented. 
Um, and I like small batch stuff that's sort of maybe a little bit humorous or has a statement behind it, you okay. know. And, um, you know, what do I do with them? They're all really, they're just all sitting in a drawer. <laughs> I, I have stickers going back to the 1980s. I mean, I oh, have wow. thousands and thousands of stickers. Um, and they're all bike and skateboard related stuff. So I don't know, just thing, things that make me feel young. And for me, it's, it's cheap artwork. Yes. Um, yeah, very much so. so, you know, something like that is sort of akin to collecting posters or, or yeah. that sort of, it's, it's, it's a cheap way to have a unique piece of art, um, without spending a lot of money. Yeah. I never, never thought of it like that actually. Like, yeah. You, you see a sticker and you sort of think that it's just like something that you'd hand out to a kid or whatever but when like when I think back now you think of all the logos and the different brands and the different sure, you say, statements Cruz, and Screaming stuff. Hand or yeah. there's certain things where I mean people recognize yeah brings uh, back memories uh, Troy Lee Flaming Eyeball uh, yeah. you know there's things that were I mean they're a rat fink on a, on a hot rod you know yeah. that sort of thing There there's things where these are, it's an artist came up with it um, and it was just a, an easy thing and now they want to replicate and just sort of pass around there. Basically, it's, it's almost like a business card for the artist, but for some reason it has some sort of resonance with the public, right? So Yeah, and I, as you say, like it, it definitely, like as soon as you mentioned like the TLD eyeball or like all of that, the Santa Cruz hand, like I can instantly picture those in my head and think about a time when I know when that happened. So. Yeah, yeah I, like I just saw that you had a lot of them and I knew you'd been collecting them for such a long time and I never really thought about why. And, yeah, I think yeah. if I laid out like all the different stickers I had, like all the, I'd probably cover, you know, a 50 by 50 square foot <laughs> <laughs> like, floor space and still have, uh, and, and I have like, you know, kerchiefs, race banners, like anything mm -hmm. with a sort of a graphic on I have lots of older stuff and you know, for me, every once in a while, I pull them out and it sort of brings me back to the time when I got them. Yeah. Um, so it's like a, it's almost like a memory jogger. Yeah. Um, you know, so like in life, I mean, the things you're, you're going to remember the experiences you had more than anything else, not the things that you had. Yeah. Sometimes it's the things, however, that make you remember the experience, right? So Yeah, for sure. So, you know, the, you know, the little box of keepsakes that you have with a handwritten note from your girlfriend <laughs> when you were 13 or, you know, like that sort of thing. There's just things that flash you back to another time. And you get that from many different things. So for me, I'm a visual person, so that definitely works. So sometimes it's a smell. Sometimes it's something I hear. And it'll yeah. flash me back to uh, yeah, yeah, like a certain you, time I, or I place. I guess you could relate so. it to a song yeah. almost at the end of the yeah. day. So, yeah, so, you know, that I like that waxes and wanes, but definitely over the years I've collected a lot of stuff, I, you know, that and a lot of a lot of bike parts for sure. Yeah. Uh, which I've tried to divest myself <laughs> of, um, you know, in recent years, just because I'd rather someone else gets to use them instead of them sitting in my storage. So uh, it's it's nicer for them to sort of get out there in the real world sort of thing. And uh, yeah. No, interesting. As I say, I knew you had a lot, but I didn't know why, and I, I, I'd never really thought about it. Yeah, that, I have that a lot of so pins, uh, miniature bicycles. Um, okay, like all the, the little Like ones made out of wire, ones that are right. given away as promos, uh, you know, stuff that people have had made in Africa as a, as a tourist, uh, you yeah. know, like, uh, like trinket sort of thing, like all sorts of weird stuff like that just you know things that sort of tickle my fancy so i like to have things that are small because it's easier to collect things that are small because yeah. they don't take up any space um you know so as i said uh, you know i'm married so i have to deal with <laughs> someone else whose opinion of things may be different from mine <laughs> so uh, if i can keep them in a drawer and pull them out for my amusement every once in a while that's a, a little bit easier for me to deal with and have yeah. to deal with the agro <laughs> there's definitely definitely a balance for yeah. uh for life for yeah. sure well. um so couple of questions before we start finishing up um what and why and i've heard this a few different times between yourself and multiple other single speed riders you're faster on a single speed 
explain to people how that works because so many people would think that you're not because obviously there's a limitation to the max speed but what i think people forget is there's a limitation to the slow speed or lowest i guess yeah so i mean you know i i gear my single speeds here anyway for the climbing um so i'm never really in the right gear so i'm you know spinning really quickly on the flats mm-hmm. and then i'm spinning really slowly on the ups um, and you know it's very rarely that i find that perfect grade that the gear ratio works for uh, but the thing with a single speed is number one it's simple the bike tends to be a little bit lighter than your other bikes um, and really you have three speeds on a single speed so you have fast slow and walking <laughs> i don't like to walk um, and i don't like to go slow so I leave myself with that one option and I say to get up this hill, it's going to be either fast and painful or slow and painful. Mm-hmm. I prefer fast and painful. I think most people do. Yeah. And uh, so I push myself a lot harder. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like my average speed, like with the gearing that I have now, you know, I'm, I'm on a belt drive. So it's like a 42, 28 or something, which we're set to, I think, if you were running a standard, be about a 32, 21. Okay. Um, which is a good mountain gear on a 29 inch bike. Um, it's very spinny on the flats. It, it takes a long yeah. time to get used to it. Um, the advantage I find to the spinning is that your muscles get a chance to flush out all the metabolites while you're on a ride. Yeah. You're also standing and sitting and moving back and forth between the two a lot more than you would on a traditional bike. So, you know, with a geared bike, I get lazy and I use the derailleur to get me up a hill. Um, on a single speed, I stand up and power up the hill. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that I started riding a single speed because I wanted to do a race in uh, Colorado. Yeah. Um, the last race that I was going to do before I moved here and the only class I could enter in was a single speed class so i bought myself a single speed okay that's a fair um, reason to start riding i came in last <laughs> in my age group it taught me a lot i went out gangbusters it was uh, a 60 mile uh race so it was, it was 64 mile um and the first 32 miles full yeah. bore <laughs> went out like a rocket and i was like this is amazing i think i went probably half as fast as the first lap on the second lap <laughs> and struggled yeah. to go I just blew myself up. Well, there's almost no mechanical advantage when you yeah. think of it. Like, there's no, you don't have any other gears to fall on. It's well, just... I just had the hubris to think that I could push at that pace for the whole <laughs> race. And I found out that, yes, all my training rides uh, had taught me uh, incorrectly. Yes. So, but, uh, you know, I have to tell you, whenever I'm feeling like sort of off of riding a bike, um, if I get back on my single speed, so the, the bike I've had the, the longest is that bike that I bought for that race in 2012. Mm-hmm. Um, I get back on that bike and I start loving cycling again. Um, and I, I just find it's a good training tool because it really teaches you, number one, how to use the terrain to your advantage. Yes. Um, and how to use your body at its maximum efficiency. Um, Plus the fact you're burning so many calories, you can really eat whatever you want afterwards, <laughs> which is great, you know? So you want to eat a tub of ice cream and four hamburgers and I mean, you've yeah, just burned 5,000 calories or yeah. whatever, so why not, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so I've heard that from a lot of different people actually, that their single speed is kind of their therapy bike. Like, yeah. Um, I had a lot of friends that race single speed, like you got the single speed world champs and all sorts of different things that go on. and. I think a lot of the single speed races actually turn into being a bigger party than what the actual race is focused on because of the style of people that ride them. But, um, and yeah, interesting. You're saying the same thing that you feel just because I think everything is so simple, as you say, it's yeah, it's everything is so simple. And when you're pedaling, really the only thing that you hear is the sound of your tires scratching on the ground because your free hub is being engaged. So it's not making any noise. It's the purest form. It's like you're running through the woods on two rubber tires. I I find I can feel the bike more on a single speed. I'm more connected Mm -hmm. to the bike. So I I like to feel that connection. Like I like to feel what the rubber of the tires is doing as though they're my feet 
grabbing yes. in the dirt. And I find that I get more of that sensation on the single speed because I'm, I think I'm more attuned to it because it's really the only thing I can think of because I don't have to think of shifting or, or yeah. anything else really other than cadence and pushing through the, the terrain, you know, to maximize your speed. So, you know, that's for me, that it's the purest form of cycle. I'm not going to say it's for everyone all the time, uh, but for me, definitely it's uh, very therapeutic. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I think everyone should try it. <laughs> um, you know, depending on where you live, <laughs> it may not be to your liking, but uh, yeah, I definitely. As I say I've heard it from a lot of different people, so it's yeah. interesting that. Yeah, it was, it was seeing. You know, like I go to these races, like in in Utah and Colorado, and that's right. It's very mountainous out there. Mm-hmm. These guys on single speeds be ripping past me, and I'm like the hell do these guys have in the tank that I don't have and yeah I just think that it's just more the the bike that they're riding forces them to ride at, at that, that level yeah. and they also seem to be having more fun than everyone else yeah <laughs> um so that's why I'm always going to have a single speed in the in the uh you know in the stable yeah um just because for me it's definitely it's a therapy bike you know for other people maybe a different type of bike maybe a dh bike or or a park bike or you know a, a track bike or whatever uh, but for me definitely a single speed bike and you know I like to ride on the dirt so even a road bike just something with drop bars on it I lean more towards the gravel side because I like getting out there in nature riding yeah. on the pavement with cars honking at you fine but you know <laughs> sometimes not, it's not nice to get thing. away from the things that you're living in your day-to-day life and and experience more of the world around you right so. yeah no i completely agree yeah. um so we're coming up to an hour and yeah. two things that i want to ask you and maybe it'll be somewhat of the same answer where's your happy place and being that you're in the position you're in as I'd say the most senior mechanic in the workshop you've had so much experience in the world in the way of the cycling industry and racing and everything like that words of wisdom I I know you've got lots of words of wisdom and you like you like to share words (laughs) (laughs) you like like to share the words of wisdom but but Um, my biggest words of wisdom is do it right or don't do it at all Yes. Um, the, you know, fixing uh, fixing someone's half-assed attempt at doing something because they're not into it is really way more of a pain in the ass. If you're not willing to give 100% to do something correctly, find something else where you're willing to give that 100%, right? So yeah. that would be my main thing maybe for the work world, <laughs> um, you know, is, is always do and, and always be honest with people um and try to do the best with people for sure um you know so always try to help someone enjoy their experience as much as possible even if it's not your own experience so this is for other people in the bike industry uh if you're a dh guy and you turn your nose up at a guy on a road bike you're not a bike guy you know what i mean so there's that guy on that road bike Maybe his kid's going to be a DH guy, or maybe somewhere down the road he's going to enjoy something. Who cares? He's just a guy having fun on two wheels like you anyway. Yeah. So just because he's not into the same sort of gear or whatever else doesn't mean that he's not someone out enjoying cycling. So enjoy the commonality of the people, for sure, Um, because I think, you know, there are people who are passionate about things and maybe too much so, and they... It's seeing the seeing the forest, but not seeing or what's the saying? I, you can't see the trees for the forest, or you can't yeah. anyway. But but you know what I mean. But yeah. it's they're they're losing they're losing, they're losing view the of the big picture because they're too laser focused on one very small segment. Yeah, you can't see sure. the forest for the trees. That's right, sort of thing. Yes. So yes, so that's that's the same. So you know. No. Yeah, so that that would be the main thing, and then find you know whatever it is, find find something that you're uh, that you enjoy doing, and try to do it as much as possible. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I like bike packing and getting out there, just because I like being out there. I like being self sufficient. I like being the guy who, you know, when when I go out in, uh, like I've sort of gravitated to that bike packing in recent years since you know maybe. 
2012, 2013 is when I really started getting into it quite a bit. Um, you know, it's, I build my bike. So I build it from the ground up. Every single part on there has been built by me. I'm the guy who rides the bike and trains on the bike. Mm -hmm. I'm the guy who has to maintain the bike. I'm the guy who chooses where I'm going. So I've made all the choices. So if anything goes wrong, <laughs> it's not anyone else's fault. It's, it's all on it's me. All on you, yeah. It teaches you to be very self-sufficient. And also it teaches you what your failures can be. Yes. Um, and then also where you're positive, uh, you know, I, I have to say, like, when I get out there, my view of people is much more open than when I'm dealing with people on a day to day basis, because <laughs> number one, you're meeting people in a different environment, you're meeting fewer of them. Mm -hmm. um, and my experiences have, you know, on the most part been very, very positive. I meet people from all over the world when I'm out there. I, I talk to people more and find out maybe a little bit more about someone who's a stranger than I would if I just bump into them on the street and like, hey, sorry, buddy, or, mm -hmm. you know, so, uh, yeah, uh, I don't know. For, for me, that's definitely the, the big aspect. I like, I like the self-sufficiency. Some people like having a lot of people around. I like, I like being self-sufficient and I like... Yeah, I would agree. I think it's yeah. at the end of the day, once you do go out and do that and and you're riding a bike that you've built from the ground up and you're out exploring the world and and you're doing it essentially all under your own power it's very satisfying yeah so, and yeah. i get to see places that other people don't get to see and that's the big thing for me is you know um like i said you're going to remember the experiences that you had in your life you're not going to be worrying about oh my god that amazing couch that i had back in 1987 <laughs> when you're on your deathbed believe me the only thing you're going to think about is the great experiences and people that you met in your life oh, right for sure. so yeah um you know maybe things have meaning while you're living but they're going to have very little meaning when you're getting to the end of your life um and having the nicest car or house or anything else that's not a big thing for me having cool experiences mm. you know within whatever means you have so sure. um you know i'm i'm like i said i'm not a millionaire or anything like that but i try to do things where i get to have an adventure on uh, you know on my budget right yeah and uh for me that's exploring you know uh, locally uh here in british columbia there's so many different beautiful places to go here. I could explore here for a hundred years and still have not seen everything that I want to see. <laughs> yeah, no, so, I would agree. Yeah. So, yeah. well, cheers and thank you for staying back tonight. Ah, no problem. And, uh, yeah. Usually I'm working on a bike, or my own or someone else's. <laughs> yeah. So. No, uh, so. it was good to hear the, the story of Tony. Yeah. This. yeah. Cheers. Thank you. <laughs>